Welcome to Financially Ever After, where award-winning and nationally recognized financial expert Stacy Francis will bring you savvy tips and words of wisdom on how to secure your financial future before, during, and after divorce. For 30 minutes every other week, you'll hear personal stories from women who have either faced or are currently facing this transition. In addition, you'll also soak up knowledge and inspiration from the industry's top legal, financial, residential, and mental health professionals. And now here's our host, Stacy Francis. Thank you, Steve. We're really excited. We have a fantastic, fantastic guest with us today, Jennifer Cousy. I'm going to give you a little background, but I just want you to kind of sit down in your seats, get a pen and paper in store because she's going to be giving us some of the top mistakes she sees her clients or other clients making when they're going through divorce. And she's also going to give us big tips on how we can protect ourselves. Now, on top of that, she has an unbelievable expertise in the area of custody, helping couples negotiate between the two of you uh, equal or or near equal time periods together. And so with that, um, we are going to go ahead and get started and introduce Jennifer. So Jennifer, great to have you here. You're a founding partner of your wonderful firm, Kremner, Cruzy and Associates, located right here in Midtown Manhattan. And you're not new to this business. In fact, you've been um, in family law practicing for now over 15 years, which I give you lots of hats off for because we know that um, this is an area where there's a lot of heart that goes into our work. And as far as your approach is trying to use mediation and negotiation whenever possible um, and when necessary litigation, which is smart, kind of bringing the big guns out only when when needed. Um, we're really excited to, to have you here also. Um, would love to, you know, we'll get to know a little bit more about you personally. I know you love to enjoy hiking, uh, traveling internationally as well, and your three kids. So we're really excited to have you here. Welcome, welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me, Stacey. I'm really happy to be here. Great, great, great. So I just want to throw it back to something that you may not have thought about before, but um, I love to hear about your first money memory um, or your money story. What comes to mind for you? Anything in particular of, you know, this is this is what I my first memory might have been. Sure. Well, um, I probably don't have a memory about money much before high school, but I definitely have a distinct memory of learning then that, you know, people have different um, values in terms of what they spend their money on and what they feel is important for them. And I remember having a friend who was always telling me that my family was so rich and that was not the truth. We were very middle class. Um, but my friend was, was a product of a divorced home and she, you know, she lived with her single mom and they definitely didn't have a lot of money, but she thought I was rich because my parents would take us on a lot of vacations. Now, what she may not have known was that those vacations were packed up in a station wagon and driving to Canada or driving to Florida or, uh, whatever my, my parents could sort of put together. Um, and, but she didn't understand how my parents had the money for that. Now on the flip side, she would go and spend which back then, because I'm pretty old, uh, she would spend, you know, $80 on a pair of shoes. And we were in ninth grade. And I thought, oh, my God, I, my, my parents would never buy me anything close to $80 shoes. And it was sort of one of those moments where, as a kid, you, you start understanding that people spend their money really differently. And that kind of feeling definitely stayed with me and still impacts me today. So I'd say that was sort of my biggest memory about money. 
And, you know, Jennifer, how did it feel for someone to tell you, you must be rich? Was, was that a positive? Was that a negative? Was that kind of a mixed feeling? Well, coming from her, it felt negative because it felt like she was sort of accusing me of being able to do all of these things that she couldn't do. Mm-hmm. Um, when in reality, I felt like she was just very misinformed about my family's financial situation. I mean, again, we were not poor, but we certainly were not rich as she was describing me. And so I felt kind of defensive and, and sort of yeah. about it. Um, and, you know, I, I think it, it really just makes you stop and, and, and understand that people have such radically different views about money. And I can only imagine, Jennifer, that in your practice of you know working with individuals going through the divorce process, that you get to see a lot of that, that how how many of your clients come in with just very different views about money, how it's to be spent or not spent. How do you deal with um, you know going through and making sure that there's there's not that judgment of someone deciding to use their money differently than, you know, you or I might want to use our money? That's a great question. And actually, I have sort of the luxury of blaming it on how I think a judge would view it. Mm -hmm. So um, oftentimes when clients come to me, one of the first things that I have them do is fill out something called a statement of net worth. And I'm sure in other cities and states, they have similar forms, but that might be called some And the first part of that form is their monthly expenses. And we give a very detailed form down to, you know, haircuts and um, toothpaste, you know, so that people really have to spend the time itemizing everything that they spend. And one of one of a few things usually happens. Um, People will say, wow, this is really depressing. I can't believe I spend this much money because they had no idea before being forced to do the form. And other times. I'll look at a form and I'll think, oh my gosh, this person spends, you know, $2,000 a month on takeout food. And, you know, I have to, of course, as a professional, keep my judgment to myself, but I can tell the person, you know, you're not working right now, or, you know, your situation is you're only making X amount of dollars. And I think if a court sees that you're spending $2,000 on takeout food, they're going to have, X or Y reaction. So I'm able to sort of use the court and how I've seen judges view certain things as a barometer and as a way for me to have that kind of a conversation with a client without them feeling that I'm being judgmental or making them feel badly about it. And Jennifer, what would you say, what are some of those red flags um, that, that judges would look for about spending that that they would deem as, as unreasonable? What, what are your thoughts there? Good question. Uh, well, this was sort of a, an easy one, but you know, even clients who I have that are smokers and they'll, they, there used to be a line item for cigarettes and they would put it in what they spent. And I would say, you know what, I know you're a smoker and you know, you're a smoker, but I want you to take that off of your statement of net worth. Um, because they're, you know, when you're going to a judge, if you're in the position of needing to ask for support, you, you don't want to show the judge that you're going to be spending on 
things that maybe aren't necessities. Now, obviously, everyone has different financial positions. And I've gone into court where people have, you know, $100,000 of expenses every month because they live a different lifestyle than my clients who maybe have $12,000 a month of expenses. So, of course, it depends on the situation and the client. But um, certainly, we just... We, we really look at the big ticket items, which are, you know, rent or mortgage and daycare or nanny, preschool, private school. And then after that, we have to kind of just look and sort of do a general reasonableness test. So, again, I mentioned takeout food. You know, if you're spending thousands of dollars on takeout food, the, the judge, you know, might raise an eyebrow uh, depending on the financial position of the family. Um, you know, other things like I've seen typically women who spend a lot of money every month on hair color and haircuts and manicures and massages. And again, if you're of that lifestyle where that's, that fits in with your budget, that's fine. But in a situation where money is tight, um, you know, showing the judge that you're spending a thousand dollars on the spa, but maybe only spending a hundred dollars buying your children clothes that's not going to look great. So we try and work with the clients and and explain, you know, how a judge may view these expenses. Certainly we want them to be honest and they have to be honest on these statements, but oftentimes it opens up a bigger conversation, which I'm sure Stacey, you have with your clients as well about, you know, rethinking their budget and rethinking how they're spending their money. Definitely. And, and something that I think there's a lot of um, misinformation about that, so many people will come to us and say, well, you know, my lawyer told me I should increase or decrease my expenses during this process. What would you say? I mean, let's put this to rest of, you know, during the divorce process, do you try and keep your expenses flated, you know, uh, above where they are? Do you just keep your spending the normal or do you start to live the new lifestyle that you know you're going to le- need to live post-divorce with less spending? What, what would you recommend? Another great question, Stacey. I'm not sure you'll love my answer, though, because I would say it's I answer that differently on a case-by-case basis. Um, I think that, you know, it's important as a lawyer that I involve the correct professionals, which might be someone like you, could be an accountant, uh, to really kind of sit down and have um, a very direct conversation about the financial position of the client. If it's a situation where these people, the, the married couple was barely making ends meet together, and now they're about to live separately where there's even less money to go around, then yes, I probably would say to my client, you know, you have to start making some cuts and let's put our heads together and figure out what can you cut out. Um Alternatively, if it's a, a different financial situation where there's plenty of money to go around, then I, I don't see any reason to tell my client that, you know, he or she needs to, to spend less. Um, very rarely would I would I suggest that someone ramp up their spending. I think it can look too obvious because when you're doing discovery and you see that, you know, the credit card statements for the last three years, they never spend more than $3,000. And all of a sudden, now that there's a divorce, they're spending five or 6000 a month. I just think it looks um, too transparent. Yeah, yeah, definitely makes sense. And what about um, the spending for the children? When you're filling out your statement of net worth, um, you know, how, how can you 
get clients to start to think about their spending differently because they have to think about their own spending, but then they also have to make sure that the spending for their children is put in another bucket so that they can truly identify that that is for the kids and so that you can start to make those arguments for add-ons or or what might be needed for, for any type of support. How do you help a woman who has really never dealt with tracking her money before start to think about these buckets? Stacy, you just have one good question after the next. Um, what I, you know, again, the statement of net worth is helpful with that. And I used to give out a more detailed version to some clients, which had separate line items for children's clothing. Oh, actually on the regular statement of net worth, it does separate out for children or for yourself, but there are other things that, you know, you have to think about that are just for kids. And Ultimately, for people who are not so on top of their finances, sometimes we have to sit down, we have to look at the last 12 months of credit card spending. We have to go through each line item and say, what was this for? What was that for? It can be tough when someone spends, you know, $600 at Amazon.com and they don't know if it's for them or for their children. So there's some estimating. Um, but certainly, yes, that is a, a huge concern for um, for parents, you know, including moms, of course. And it is important that they figure out, again, what are the big ticket items? You know, I know that I'm working or I'm going back to work and I'm going to need a nanny. And how much is that going to cost? Or I know we have preschool or I know we have after school activities. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, talking to other moms who maybe are a year or two ahead of where your kids are to find out, okay, how much does baseball cost or how much is gymnastics or how much is ballet to start, to start to really be able to formulate a sustainable budget. Um, and you mentioned add-ons and in New York, and I'm sure again, it's different in every state, but in New York, there are statutory add-ons, which are things that the non-custodial parent must contribute to, and they include unreimbursed medical expenses expenses and work necessitated childcare. So the other things like soccer, ballet, gymnastics are not statutory add-ons, but they could be things that you say to the other parent when you're trying to negotiate, hey, we both want what's best for our child. Will you please agree to share in the extracurricular activities? So we try to negotiate that but it's not a requirement under New York law that the other person contribute to it. It's supposed to theoretically come out of regular um, child support. So it is very important to think about every possible expense that you might have for your kids and for yourself, really so you can identify what money you need to make your household run. You know, and I love, Jennifer, I love your advice that I have never heard before of talk to other moms who have kids who are a little bit older than yours because we, and I'm sure you see this too, clients that come in that have little ones, um, might be one or two, having, you know, a very different reality of the expenses and needs of their child versus when their child is 16 and, you know, potentially needing to go on school trips that bless might even be abroad or, you know, a ski trip or ski vacation with their friends or God forbid, um, I know I'm in for it, orthodontia, which you know is, is going to be really expensive. Um, and so I, I think your advice too, to think about not just the here and now, but you know, you have these kids blessed for the rest of their lives and you're going to be financially responsible for them for, for many, many, many more years. And so making sure that you think about that too. Yeah. Very, very important. 
And and do you see any like what you would say is kind of like big mistakes um, that that women make you you see happening over and over again with regards to budgeting or with regards to spending, um, you know, either through the process or after? Um, I'm not sure about spending. I think the mistakes that I see the most are more sort of a weird concept, but more emotional mistakes. So, you know, a lot of times I see women and they let their anger or their hurt feelings cloud their judgment about what would be a, a reasonable settlement or you know what they what they could um, what they could live with you know it's and sometimes it's just sort of well I want to inflict pain rather than thinking oh this is actually a good deal for me so that's one mistake that I see um, another mistake that I see is sometimes um, and you know we we can all relate to this certainly is an emotional attachment to the marital residence. And mm, I think sometimes yes. that can cloud um, other aspects of a, a person's financial health. You know, they're, they're so, um, I don't want to use the word fixated, but I don't have a better word right now, but they're so fixated on keeping their kids in the home that they're used to. And we all want stability for our children and it's a very natural reaction and it's very understandable and very commendable. Um, however, that being said, you know, kids, and this is the great thing about them are generally, obviously there's always exceptions, but generally very flexible. And if they know that mom is happy or they know dad is happy, by and large, they're going to be okay. And they're going to be happy. And if mom, you know, sacrifices too much financially just to keep the home, but then it really um, restricts what mom's able to spend for the kids or, you know, do fun activities with the kids. Sometimes, you know, a mom or a dad really could really benefit from having um, a dispassionate person like yourself or an accountant or their lawyer really look at the whole picture and say, you know what, I know you'd really love to keep the house, but it's really just not going to provide you the quality of life that you'd like. So that's another yeah. mistake that I see. And then the other mistake that I see frequently is, um, you know, women who were stay-at-home moms and they know eventually they have to go back to work, but they put it off either in order to increase their spousal maintenance claim or for whatever reason. And my personal feeling is, of course, you have to strategize with your own lawyer about your own situation. But even if for whatever reason you decide you're not going to jump back into the workforce immediately, I think there's no reason that women should not be networking, calling old business contacts, investigating new certifications or degrees, laying the groundwork, getting their ducks in a row so that when they do need to get back out there, they're not starting from ground zero. Um, th this yep. is sort of a personal passion of mine because I have seen that a lot of very smart, very accomplished women who have left the workforce to raise children, which is great, um, but they didn't have a prenuptial agreement or a postnuptial agreement telling them, hey, if you step out of the workforce, that's okay, I'm gonna support you for a long time. And now they're stuck in a position where uh, either there's not enough money to go around or the law is such that they're not entitled to a lot of money and they're stuck because they've been out of the workforce for a long time. So um, as a as a working mom and as a woman lawyer and as a lawyer that wants to see, you know, her female clients succeed and land on their feet, 
Um, this is one of sort of my personal uh, passions is to say, you know, get back out there. Um, even if you're not ready to physically go into an office, start meeting people, start going out for lunch, brush up on your resume, do what you yep. can to get yourself ready and prepared. That is absolutely fantastic advice. And, you know, it's interesting because I can see how you bringing up kind of one of those those mistakes that you see often is letting the emotions get in front of your decision making impact, you know, unfortunately keeping the house, you know, impact, maybe not going back to work as soon as you want to. Also, we've definitely seen an impact custody and would love to spend a little bit more time um, before we, we end the COD podcast, because we know that you have an unbelievable expertise in here, but can you tell us, just get us, up to speed about, you know, what is sole custody? What is shared custody? Um, does that impact your ability to uh, have a certain amount in child support? Um, you know, what does that look like? And then, you know, this is down the line. We'll, we'll talk about, you know, what some of those different scenarios are of custody options that you've seen work well for, for clients. Okay, sure. Uh, again, this is going to vary state by state. So what I'm talking about is really related only to New York. Um, in New York, the the case law is pretty clear in that there is there are two types of custody. There's legal custody, which is decision making about big decisions for your children. And then there is residential or physical custody, which is where are your children going to live. Um, you know, it's more and more common that people are seeking um, a 50-50 schedule, you know, equal parenting mm -hmm. time. That does impact child support. Um, unfortunately, I recently uh, had to litigate this this very issue. Um, of course, a good successful result. So that's good. But it's a shame that these things have to be, you know, fought so hard all the time. But, you know, the, the law in New York is, is such that if you have equal time, uh, the parent who makes more money has to pay support. So there is an interplay between residential custody and child support. And so, of course, this is a decision that you need to speak to your individual attorney about based on your situation. Obviously, in 50-50 is not appropriate in every case. I certainly wouldn't say that it is. Um, but those cases are sort of easier to navigate with, with respect to child support because if kids are living with one parent, you know, the bulk of the time, it's very clear that they're entitled to support. Whereas if you have a 50-50 situation, both parents are setting up homes for kids. They both need money to mm -hmm. feed the kids and clothe the kids and pay the electric bills for the kids and pay rent for the kids. So there, there is a little, um, you know, it can be a little bit more difficult to navigate, but certainly we do it all the time. Um, in terms of you know, custody situations or different, um, you know, different schedules. Um, again, I mentioned, you know, 50-50 is very common, which can be achieved in different ways. I have some clients who do one week on, one week off. Mm -hmm. I have some clients who do what we call a 5-2 or a 5-2 wrap, um, which is one parent gets every Monday night and Tuesday night. The other parent gets Wednesday night, Thursday night. And then they alternate the weekends, which are from Friday afternoon to Monday morning. And in that situation, you rarely, if ever, see the other parent because all of the pickups and drop-offs are centered around school or camp. 
mm-hmm. um, or some other activity. So um, that's a very popular schedule. Uh, although some parents say, oh, I think five days is too long to go without seeing my, my child. So there's a lot of different variations of that kind of a schedule. And certainly all kinds of permutations where it you know, could be close to 50-50, but it's not exactly 50-50. Um, sometimes parents don't live near each other. You know, one mm-hmm. parent may move to Long Island. The other parent lives in New York City. Um, sometimes the schedule is such that the, the kids will live primarily in one place during the school year, but then in the summer, you know, we switch the schedule around so that they're primarily in the other location. Um, I really try when I am negotiating or mediating, which I, I really enjoy doing, to really think about, you know, what is going to best set these kids up and really these two families up for success. Um, where are the strengths of each parent? Uh, what, where do the kids need to be in terms of schools or camp or you know, around extended family? And really try to roll all of that into what would be the best and most appropriate situation. Uh, of course, sometimes it's easier to navigate than others. Uh, sometimes parents don't agree on what's best. And, and, you know, as you said before, at that point, then you do have to resort to litigation, which is always sort of the, the last resort. And Jennifer, do you, do you see um, in high conflict cases, a parent coordinator being a, a good, a good resource after to, to actually implement this? Yes. Uh, I have clients right now who utilize parent coordinators. Uh, certainly it really depends on the willingness and attitude of both parents to make things work and try to cooperate as much as possible. You can imagine there are some situations where parent coordinators work beautifully and other situations where, uh, despite their best efforts, it still doesn't resolve conflict. So, uh, you know, overwhelmingly, yes, I, I, I'm supportive of parent coordinators and I think they're great and I think they do wonderful things. But of course, it's, um, it, you know, it matters what the parties are like. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if you have, you know, come come together and, and figured out what what you're going to be doing, um, you know, come a year later, if there are, you know, outside circumstances, whatever it might be, maybe the, uh, one of the parents has an addiction, it could be that there might be specific medical issues for a child. Can, can you know, child custody orders be changed or modified? And how onerous is that? And aka what I'm saying is expensive. Well, yeah, I know. Expensive. That's a big one, right? <laughs> very, very expensive. Um, the simple answer to the first part of the question is that you can always revisit custody if there is a bona fide reason to do so. So you have to meet a certain hurdle or threshold, which is, you know, has there been a substantial or significant enough change that would merit a judge taking another look at this? Um, I have several cases in my office right now where we're doing just that. These are modifications of custody, um, again, due to, you know, poor judgment on one parent's part that's negatively impacting the kids. Um, addictions, you know, all kinds of things. So yes, they can be revisited, um, but not without a, a significant financial investment, which is is tough, very tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I think post-divorce too, um, when 
the purse strings are even tighter, it, it becomes harder because custody, at least in my experience, has been the biggest cost of a uh, of any issue to litigate. Um, so tell me what your thoughts are, Jennifer, of of how you can go through this process and and find a a custody situation, a, a custody um, you know conclusion that's going to really work for the two of you, a schedule, a, a parenting agreement that's going to really work. What would you say is is the most important thing on those cases that you do see are successful? Well, I think, you know, again, it's so case by case and it really depends on the personalities of the parents. Um, when you have two parents who are very self-aware and they sort of know what their strengths and weaknesses are, it's, it's much easier to have a frank conversation about what would be best for the kids. And sometimes the parents really are on the same page about that. Um, in other cases, as you sort of alluded to before, there are more complicating factors, right? So maybe one parent in, in his or her heart thinks that 50-50 would be okay, but they refuse to pay child support. So they're not going to agree to a 50-50 situation if it means there's the threat of them having to pay. So unfortunately, there are these other factors that make it really hard to give general advice. Um, but if I had to do my best, I would say, you know, just really being introspective, um, being open to hearing what the other parent has to say. Um, certainly, you know, it can be tough when you're, it is tough when you're divorcing and all of a sudden, you know, you've spent every day with your kids and now you're going to go from being, you know, a part-time parent all the time to being a full-time parent some of the time. That's a huge transition for parents to make. Um, and so I think just really being honest with yourself as a parent is the best thing that you can do for your child or children um, and the best way to really resolve custody in a, in a fair and appropriate fashion that, of course, has the best interests of the children at heart. So I know it's a little generic um, and I apologize for that, but, you know, every case is so different and has different factors. It's kind of hard to be um you know, more specific. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're Jennifer, you're right. I mean, divorces come in all different shapes, all different sizes. And, you know, every situation is different as, um, you know, not only is every relationship different, um, you know, among couples, but it's also every different, every divorce and, and every relationship with children going through and after the divorce is different. Um, but these are really important pieces. And I'm really glad you, you shared. Number one, we talked a little bit today about you know, top things to think about to be smart with your money, knowing where you spend money, um, specifically what are kind of the, the red flags judges, judges look for, um, you know, really making sure that you're making smart decisions without letting your emotions get in, in the way, smart decisions about your career, smart decisions about your, uh, your, your future spending and, and also smart decisions about, you know, where you're going to live. And most importantly, custody where, you know, you comes to your kids and really for, for those of, of us that are moms, um, you know, you and I, we know that uh, we would cut off our right arms and maybe even our left for our children. So Absolutely. being able to understand how we can best protect them and make sure that we find a good custody situation that's going to work for them is, is absolutely key. So uh, now the next question is kind of an odd question. Um, but you know, are, are financially ever after that's really what we're all looking for is a financially secure financially ever after. And 
going to turn the tables on you if you don't mind, but I'd love to hear from you, Jennifer. What would you say is your financially after ever after? Is it, is it a boat? Is it, you know, being able to retire? Is it just being able to look at the sunset and know things are good? What, what does that look like for you? Um, lottery winnings, I would say. There you go. There you go. <laughs> um, well, no, but, but bringing it back to reality, you know, I, I think, um, getting myself in a place where, um, I feel like, you know, my kids' college is all going to be paid for. I can retire at a reasonable age. Um, I don't have to stress about, um, you know, chasing my clients to pay their bills, which thankfully, you know, they've been good about recently. But as a, as a business owner, that's always something that we have to worry about. And um, I think, you know, just getting to a point, and I, I think I'm, I'm almost there, which is great, that I really can, you know, look at the sunset and just take a deep breath and, and enjoy it rather than uh, worrying about money, you know, which I never want to have to do. And I don't think anyone does. Yeah. Worrying about money is nothing that anyone ever strives for. Um, you know, something that we all, we all agree, no matter what age, shape, size, shade, whoever we are, financial security and feeling comfortable about money is really, really key. So, so thank you for being here, Jennifer, and sharing your time and sharing your unbelievable knowledge with, with us and, and with all of our listeners. It's, it's really important that during this divorce process that you're making smart decisions. And I feel like the advice you gave today um, is going to be very helpful, very helpful. Thank you so much for having me, Stacey. I really enjoyed it and um, look forward to speaking with you soon. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Another great show, Stacy. How do our listeners get a hold of you for more information? The easiest way is uh, feel free to reach out and to our website at francisfinancial.com. It has great um, information, even has a picture of our cute security dog, Shadow. <laughs> really? So she is on there too, what just kind to kind of, of entice you. Uh, but you can also uh, visit me uh, at, by going ahead to email me, Stacy S-T-A-C-Y, at francisfinancial.com. And you can always always give us a call, 212-374-9008. And if you come into the office, you can have free pets with Shadow. That's what I say. Free pets with the security dog. All right. So you have to tell us what kind of dog. So she's actually a little rescue. Um, we're not sure quite... What she is, but she looks like a very fat chihuahua. So based on that, um, we think that she is half pug, where she gets her little chubbiness from, and half chihuahua. So Aww. she's just this cute little adorable thing that thinks that she's a real person. And um, I know people say that, you know, we saved her, but she is uh, definitely saved us in a lot of ways, too. She's just a really special little doggy. It's a cute story. More Financially Ever After programs coming soon with Stacy Francis. Thanks so much again, Stacy. Thank you. And if you don't want to miss an episode of Financially Ever After with Stacy Francis, you can listen to the programs and subscribe on iTunes, TuneIn, and Stitcher Radio, Smart TVs, and DivorceSourceRadio.com.